We're going all out of order of those asterisks this morning. As I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, we have the opportunity to have with us Dr. Hans Medueme uh, from Covenant College, where he is a biblical and theological studies uh, professor there. Uh, he was, as I mentioned in the Friday letter, one of my son Josiah's favorite professors uh, while he was there. So that's, I guess, one of the benefits of being the pastor's kid. You know, when we invite people, we can get your favorites. Uh, so... Uh, but I, really, we're honored to have him here. We're doing a little event tomorrow as well for some of the local churches with regards to Covenant College. I made a little list of uh, just places where Covenant College graduates serve in our midst, uh, and it's, it's, it's just profound. We have people in uh, director of uh, children's ministry. We've had uh, people who are deacons and nursery leads and youth group volunteers, uh, teaching Sunday school, helping out with counseling, uh, directing capital campaigns, just, you know, all sorts of places. We've been really blessed by this association uh, with the college, which is our denominational college. So it's a privilege to have hands with us this morning to open God's Word and uh, I'm sure that we all will be blessed by it. Hans, come. Welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> Greetings from St. Elmo Presbyterian Church. Uh, we're a small PCA church at the bottom of Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga. Uh, Cal Burroughs was our pastor for uh, 30 years and then retired in 2020. And then we've had an interim pastor for over two and a half years. Uh, it's been a long transition period, but I'm happy to report that we have just hired uh, a new pastor, thanks be to God, and he'll be installed early June, uh, so in a few weeks. I'm also grateful to your pastor for the privilege of um, opening God's word to you this morning. It's a brave Dutchman who uh, allows a Nigerian to fill his pulpit, no questions asked. Um, <clears throat> so Ulf Ekman is a famous pastor in Sweden. In 1983, he founded the Word of Life Church in Uppsala, Sweden, which, by the way, is where I was born. Ekman was part of the charismatic movement and was a pastor of pastors, especially among Pentecostals. And many people called him Sweden's Billy Graham. So it was a shock in 2014 when he and his wife announced that they were joining the Roman Catholic Church. After serving 30 years as leaders in the Pentecostal movement, they were turning to the Catholic Church. One of the reasons they gave was they wanted to see a united church, and they couldn't see that among Protestants. All they could see was infighting, division, confusion in Protestant denominations. Celebrity pastors all over the place, uh, everyone with their own little fiefdom, megachurches, and so on. But the, where is the unity that our Lord Jesus talked about in John 17? Ekman is not the only Protestant who has converted to Roman Catholicism. Many evangelicals are getting disillusioned with the Protestant tradition on taking the long road back to Rome. And plenty of books have been written on this phenomenon. Some of you may have read uh, one or two of them already. 
But what, what should we make of this? I mean, Christ Church is a PCA church, about as Protestant as it gets. As Protestant believers, should we be shouting hallelujahs, or should we be hanging our heads in shame? On one level, Ekman is right. You can just look at the divided state of Protestantism today. Just look at the hopeless condition of North American evangelicalism. It sure seems like none of this madness would ever have happened if perhaps there hadn't been a Reformation. Why be reformed when more and more people are saying the Reformation is over? Why be reformed when our denomination seems to attract zealous theological diehards, the truly reformed, divisive, belligerent types, curmudgeons always itching for an excuse to stir up trouble? So I think we can agree the PCA and the broader reform tradition is far from perfect. At times we weep for our failings, and yet here we are, good old Protestants, worshiping in a Presbyterian church. Why? Why do we continue to align ourselves with this tradition? I don't know all your individual stories, uh, but I would venture to say that most of us have embraced this imperfect tradition because we have been held captive by the glory of God. The glory of God. We have seen it, we have embraced it, we, uh, and experienced it, and it has changed our lives forever. This is one of the main reasons we have, been embraced, we have embraced the PCA and the Reformed family. Zeal for the glory of God is the heartbeat of our tradition. Soli Deo Gloria was one of the five solas of the Reformation. To God alone be the glory. Our text uh, this morning is from Luke's Gospel, 9, chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Um, let me read, um, listen to the word of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the, two, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please pray with me. 
Lord, uh, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this text reminds us that one, the one thing that has changed our lives forever, the surpassing glory of God. This passage in Luke is waking us up this morning to an astonishing truth, that God is eminently, unimaginably, indescribably glorious. The haunting movie scores of Hans Zimmer, the beauty of a swarm of monarch butterflies, the loveliness of a thousand sunsets, they all pale in the face of God's glory. They're only faint images, echoes, rumors of the real thing. That's what I see in this text, the surpassing glory of God. And this morning, I want to unpack that glory by answering three simple questions. The first question, who, who embodies God's glory perfectly? Verses 28 to 31. The second question, why do we often struggle to live up to God's glory? Verses 32 to 33. And then the third question, what does God's glory mean for us today? Verses 34 to 36. So the first question, who embodies God's glory perfectly? Who indeed? Right, so up to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been something of an enigma. Who is this Jewish man? By whose authority is he doing these things? People were asking these questions. King Herod had recently disposed of John the Baptist. Now Herod was wondering about Jesus. Who is he? In the previous chapter, Jesus miraculously calmed the storm. And so his disciples were left asking, who is this man? And in fact, in Luke 9.20, in a rare moment of spiritual insight, the apostle Peter declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Everyone was trying to figure out exactly who Jesus is. Now, of course, for us, when we hear the passage, we shrug our shoulders, right? We know the story. Jesus is the God-man, no biggie, right? The hypostatic union, we've heard it so many times, we forget how astonishing it is. So if you look at verse 28, Jesus takes three of his disciples on a mountain to pray. They go to the mountain to pray. And right there, I think, um, we can pause and just pray to the Lord. We repent the many times that we ignore you, Father, and we treat prayer as a chore, we repent of how often we rely on our own power and our own resources, the way that we modern people arrange our lives, and it deceives us into thinking that we can live as if you do not exist and as if you do not matter. But we can't. We are most in touch with reality when we are praying. And so we see Jesus praying as he so often does because he was most in touch with reality. <clears throat> and reality, my friends, is often not what we see on the surface of things. Look what happened to Jesus. The appearance of his face changed. His clothes became dazzling white. 
The other gospel writers speak of him being transfigured. His face became like the shining sun. In that moment of transfiguration, we see what is really real. We see what is real but hidden from view. We see that in the incarnation, the Son of God willingly humbled himself. His pre-incarnation glory in the fellowship of the Trinity, it was hidden. If you had looked at Jesus, you would not have seen it. But on the mountain, the disciples got a glimpse of divine things. They saw that Jesus embodies that glory. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. But the transfiguration uncovers so much more about reality. Notice the appearance of Moses and Elijah in verse 30. It's a striking reminder that we need both the Old and New Testament if we want to be true followers of Jesus Christ. Every now and then you meet someone who says that the God of the Old Testament is different. He's meaner. He's harsher than the God of the New Testament. And I, I get where they're coming from. But that view falls apart when we realize that the Bible is telling one big story. There's one plot. All the chapters relate to each other. You don't have to be Nancy Drew to see all the clues. Moses and Elijah represent the entire Old Testament tradition. It was pointing to the Messiah. Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. These men were forerunners of, to the Messiah. Scripture was clear that someone greater than Moses would appear. Someone greater than Elijah would save Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses tells the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And in Malachi chapter 4, last chapter of the Old Testament, we hear these words. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So you see what's happening. Here in our text, both Elijah and Moses have appeared in the presence of Jesus the Old Testament prophecies all find their fulfillment in Christ. He was the one Israel was hoping for. He was the one that the entire cosmos had waited for as it groaned as in the pains of childbirth. One greater than Moses was here. One greater than Elijah was here. Who embodies God's glory perfectly? My friends, his name is Jesus. Praise the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The transfiguration was a foretaste of Christ's resurrection when the Father would glorify his Son. And in verse 31, Moses and Elijah spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. 
They knew that Jesus was about to die. They knew that all the pieces were coming into place. Jesus would suffer, yes, and he would die on the cross, yes, but it was precisely through that suffering and death that he would be victorious. And later on in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 26, he says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Moses and Elijah knew that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were about to crush the devil in the cosmic battle. Crucifixion and resurrection and glorification. O Lucifer, how the mighty have fallen. Checkmate, game over. Reality is not always what it seems on the surface. The transfiguration gave the apostles a glimpse of who Jesus really is, the perfect embodiment of God's glory. Moses and Elijah, they were unique men, but Jesus was on a completely different order. He died, but in dying, he defeated death, and he rose again to eternal life. Moses and Elijah were special. In the Old Testament, they were a big deal, but in our text... What do we see? They vanish. Only Jesus remains. The old order has passed away, and the new has come. And it gets better, as the Lord tells us in 2 Peter. When Peter looks back to this transfiguration event, he says that the glorious appearance of Jesus was also a glimpse of his second coming, when God will put the world to rights once and for all. We live in a radically secular, uh, naturalistic, anti-Christian age, and it has left many of us angry, confused, demoralized, and feeling increasingly marginalized. But we do well to remember that there's more to this world than meets the eye. Moses and Elijah are both alive. They are right now with God, And if Moses and Elijah are alive, we can be encouraged that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the other saints down through the ages, they too are very much alive and waiting for the number of the elect to be brought to completion. Though no one could see it, Jesus embodied the very glory of God while he walked the roads of Galilee. The three apostles glimpsed it at the transfiguration. Let us not be deceived by the prevalent views of the world around us. It's too easy for us to get bent out of shape by what is happening in our country and throughout the world. We're too easily sucked into the dominant narratives of our society. I'm not saying we should ignore these concerns, but always remember there's a bigger story a true and more real drama that we are a part of. And that story has a different set of priorities with the glory of God at its heart. Soli Deo Gloria. So, we've answered one question, who embodies God's glory perfectly? But there's a second question we need to ask. Why do we often struggle to live up to this glory? I think the answer to that question is right there in verses 32 and 33. 
Notice what it says about Peter and his companions. They were very sleepy. I wonder if that can be said about anyone here today. Jesus brings his disciples with him to pray. He wants them to join him in serious spiritual labor. And one thing you can count on with Peter and the other disciples, when it's time to pray, they're going to fall asleep. We shouldn't be too hard on them, though. We're the same. Most of us are lightweights, spiritually speaking. We know all about football stats. We can quote sitcoms verbatim. But just ask American Presbyterians to come to a prayer meeting. Suddenly, everyone is tired and eyelids start drooping. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. My friends, too many of us are sleepwalking through life. Our physical drowsiness reflects a deeper spiritual drowsiness. But thankfully, the disciples wake up and they're able to glimpse the surpassing glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then, true to form, Peter says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Oh, dear. Yet again, Peter puts his foot in his mouth in two ways, right? Like, first, he wanted to build three tents, one each for Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. Come on, Peter. Moses and Elijah are not on the same level as Jesus. They're not in the same league. Moses and Elijah are sinful men. They need to be saved from their sins. Jesus is the God-man. He's the Savior of the world. That was Peter's first mistake. His second mistake is that he was trying to get ahead of God's plan. He wanted Jesus to be glorified before he underwent suffering and death. Peter was impatient, impetuous. Peter wanted things to happen then and there, but God was working on a different timetable. Jesus had to suffer and die before he would be glorified. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says as much in chapter 2, verse 9, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here was Peter in the very presence of the Lord. And he had witnessed one of the most astonishing events in human history, the transfiguration. And yet his theology was still wearing diapers. Now, I I think we should cut Peter some slack Right? Verse 33 tells us he did not know what he was saying. I think there's a lesson here for those of us in the PCA, right? We're not so different from Peter. Our denomination has a reputation for theological precision. Compared to other traditions, we're known for rigorous, careful thinking. But even so, we often struggle to live up to God's glory. We become spiritually drowsy. Even when our theological confessions are impeccable, our practice often falls short of our deepest theological convictions. It should not be all that surprising. Of all people, we should be the ones uh, most sensitive to this scenario. We're the ones who emphasize the doctrine of total depravity. 
we recognize that even for those united with Christ, sin still touches every aspect of our lives. We cannot escape it, though the indwelling Holy Spirit helps us to mortify sin. And furthermore, as the Westminster Confession tells us, our theological confessions are imperfect. Only scripture is perfect. We shouldn't be surprised to discover that sin has crept into our souls and into our churches and into our tradition. So it's possible that Pentecostal evangelicals in South America and Africa have something to teach us about nurturing a living, vibrant, and expectant faith. We can learn from South Korean believers about what it looks like day in and day out to pray as communities and to pray privately. And I say that not for us to become something we're not, not to undermine or to dilute our fundamental reformed commitments, but rather to deepen, to enrich, to correct, to come ever closer to the truth that is God's word written and incarnate in Jesus. So why do we often struggle to live up to God's glory? Mainly because of our own sin, the way it has affected our own personal lives, the way it has seeped into our own traditions. We become spiritually drowsy like Peter and the other apostles. We need God's supernatural help from his word, from the church, and from the means of grace. And we need his help from other believers. So far, the text has put before us the surpassing glory of God. And it has done that by answering two questions. Who embodies God's glory perfectly? His name is Jesus, and he is more beautiful. He is more lovely than anything we have ever seen or imagined. And the second question is, why do we often struggle to live up to God's glory? Like Peter, we become spiritually drowsy. God can use whatever means at his disposal to wake us up to the reality of the deep things of God. But there's one more question that we should ask. What does God's glory mean for our lives today? In verse 34, a cloud appears and covers everyone on the mountain. Again, we see the rich connections to the Old Testament, right? We're reminded of the many times during the Exodus when Yahweh appeared to Moses in a cloud. For example, in Exodus 40, 35, we read that Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the glory of God um, appeared to Israel, it was often in the form of a cloud. And now a cloud appeared around Jesus. Jesus was now God's Shekinah glory. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's the voice of the father giving his approval to the work of his son. If anyone was still wondering about the identity of Jesus... This should put all of that to rest. He's the second person of the Trinity, God's Shekinah glory. And the Father tells us to listen to him. The secret to happiness in just three words. Three words to set you free. 
Listen to him. Listen to what Jesus says. God's Shekinah glory. Listen to him. Obedience, my friends. This is what God is calling us to. The first chapter of John tells us that Jesus is the incarnation of God's word. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. All of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, all of them speak about Jesus. Indeed, Holy Scripture is God's word written. When we obey Scripture, we are listening to Jesus. What does God's glory mean for our lives today? I think the main answer is that we listen to Jesus. God the Father is encouraging us to be steadfast in obedience. Don't get tired of doing what God says. Don't lose hope. Even when it seems that everything in our culture presses us in the opposite direction, even when we don't feel like it, persevere. Stay faithful. Listen to him. We cannot go wrong because Luke's gospel has peeled back the curtain and we have glimpsed the true nature of reality. These days, we, we all feel a strong pull to conform to the myths of our post-Christian age. We're saturated in stories that shape us in the wrong ways. I feel it. You feel it, right? On some level, we're all part of the matrix. But we know, we know, we know it's not the real world. This is all dying. It's all passing away. The devil is like a roaring lion. He has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And his days are numbered. So we should not be surprised when the great things of the gospel are attacked with enormous sophistication and subtlety and complexity every day. That should not surprise us at all. Reality check. This life we live is not an armistice. We're in spiritual warfare. And yet, the Father reassures us. These are the death pangs of a world that is passing away. We should not lose hope. Aslan is alive. And he's on the move. Spring is coming. Jesus is God's Shekinah glory. We have glimpsed the world's future and it is unspeakably glorious. Listen to him. Listen to him. And at this point, I know that I know what some of you are thinking, right? If only we had been on that mountain with Peter, James, and John, right? If only we'd been there. If we had heard the voice of the Father as we were enveloped by a cloud, I mean, it would have been a done deal. Right? It would be so easy for us to obey. It would be easy to remain steadfast. The apostles had it easier than us. They saw these things. They heard these things. We're not so lucky. I, I feel your pain. Um, but as it turns out, I think we have it backwards. It is we who are privileged. We have it better than the apostles did. I'm not lying. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 to 18, Peter recalls that experience of the transfiguration with the other apostles. And listen to what he says in verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, 
and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Did you hear that? The word of the prophets is made more certain. We can have more confidence in Scripture than in what the apostles saw and heard on the mountain. As we ponder the wonders of the transfiguration, it should lead us back to our Bibles to read and to study, but more than that, to obey. Let us not be merely hearers of the word, but let us be doers of the word. Let us do it privately. Let us do it in our families. Let us do it in our small groups. Let us do it with our close friends. Let us do it corporately in this church. Let us do it wherever God has called us. Listen to him. Listen to him. The transfiguration that Jesus experienced was not just a window into his divine nature. It was also a glimpse that his human nature would be glorified in the future. This passage in Luke is so full of hope for us as we live our lives in this veil of tears. We too, you and I, will be glorified on the last day. If your body is failing you, if you're acutely aware of the fragility of life, your heart is failing you, your joints are failing you, the medicines that the doctors give you can only do so much. If you're old enough to have tasted any of that, know this. We will experience an ineffable glory after our suffering here. That is the promise of the transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured, he was about to suffer in ways none of us can ever imagine. He was about to suffer so that we would not experience the second death. And it was through that suffering that he would be glorified by the Father. The transfiguration was a foretaste ultimately of his second coming when he will receive all praise and glory and honor. And as we follow him, whatever sacrifices we make, whatever suffering we experience as we carry our own crosses, I can promise you there is glory at the end. Of that, we can be certain. Jesus is God's surpassing glory, and we too will be glorified with new bodies. We will undergo a metamorphosis into the kind of creatures that would take your breath away. Angels in heaven will be in awe at the glorified saints, emancipated from sin, forever. Thank God Almighty, we will be free at last. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Take heart. Keep the faith. Listen to Jesus. Amen.